Book of Judges, chapter 15 this evening. If you're visiting with us on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Last time we left Samson, one of the judges of Israel, he had tried to marry a Philistine woman. And uh, obviously God was not pleased with that because God had raised Samson up uh, from his mother's womb to deliver the children of Israel from the bondage uh, of the Philistines. And here he is endeavoring to marry in uh, among them. And uh, so he had the wedding had reached the final day of a seven-day wedding ceremony that they had in those days, and and just before their kind of you know husband and wife in the fullest sense of of things, he had thirty Philistine attendants that were a part of his wedding party, and he had posed a riddle to them, and they couldn't figure the riddle out, and so they began to try and work on his fiancée under the threat of death against her and her family to discover from Samson the meaning of the riddle. Ultimately, she was able to get it from him. She communicated it to them. He lost the bet, which was 30 changes of linen and of clothing. And, uh, and then as a result of this, and they had you know, plowed with his heifer and all, they had done something that was inappropriate to... To solve the riddle, as, as he said, he returned home uh, fuming with, with anger. And so this whole event had ruined his wedding day. So he just leaves home, goes back to Israel, and, uh, and intends upon returning back to Timnath to consummate the marriage when he is in a little bit better mood. And so uh, that better mood hits in chapter 15, verse 1. After a while, at the time of the wheat harvest... It happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. So he reapproaches the Philistine uh, city and he's cooled down now. And, and so now he wants to return to be with his wife. He brings a, a young goat. And the purpose of that is, to, of course, to barbecue the goat and have some uh, goat kebabs or whatever you have on a Philistine honeymoon or something like that. So they want to have something good to eat and enjoy the honeymoon that that uh, never happened. Now, obviously, Samson b- feels that he is legally married to her, but he's about to really get the shock of his life and uh, because this uh, woman that he loves uh, so much or he was so attracted to that pleased him so much has been given to his best man. And so he comes now, says to the, his father-in-law, let me go into my wife into her room, and, but the father, her father would not permit him to go in. And this was his explanation. The father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. I mean, when you just stomped off the way you did, as mad as you were, man, I thought we'd never see you again. And therefore, I gave her to your best man. Welcome to a Philistine wedding, I guess. And then he realizes this is complicated for him. And so he said, is not her younger sister better than she? Uh, Please take her instead. And so uh, the father informs Samson that, that, uh, that the one that he was so attracted to has been married off now, but she's got a younger sister. And in my opinion, the father says she's better looking, and so uh, go ahead and take her. And the father assumed that, again, when Samson stormed off, they'd never see him uh, again. And, and it wasn't uh, the giving of the, the daughter to the best man. It wasn't just that they thought that they'd never see Samson again, but what Samson did uh, to that Philistine family was an insult to the family. So it would be kind of like every once in a while you read about it today. And I mean, it's just terrible when, when you, you hear about this kind of thing where the groom stands the bride up on her wedding day. She's at the altar and he never shows. So what Samson does on, in this thing is an insult to the daughter. It's an insult to the whole family. And so here they've, uh, they've got this whole wedding, everything's going on and all, and uh, so the father decides to make the best of it, and he's going to marry the daughter off one way or another. So it's just the way that it was in the ancient world. Now Samson said 
to them, verse 3, this time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. And so he's going to uh, wreak some revenge against the Philistines because of what the father-in-law did. And his justification is an interesting one here. Uh, clearly the offer of the younger daughter does not please Samson. And uh, I would venture to guess that the source of the whole contention probably centered on the dowry that Samson and his family would have paid to the father uh, uh, of the older sister. A dowry in those days was essentially alimony in advance, where if you were a, a man who was... I must be preaching in California. So, but, but it was kind of a security thing. So here I am, I'm going to marry someone's daughter. And what happens if I die? What happens if I leave her for someone else and all? So the family would require a substantial dowry in case the daughter ever had to move back into the family with her, her family and be supported by the family. And so this money apparently had been given to the father-in-law and the father-in-law now in his in what he speaks to to Samson he number one he makes no mention of returning the dowry number two he's now offering Samson inferior goods both these things uh, upset Samson and so he's he's going to uh, that's how he justifies what it is that he is is about to do and then Samson went and he caught 300 foxes now that, that's remarkable even before he sets their tails on fire. I don't know the last time you caught a fox, but probably trapped them and all. But I mean, that's an amazing thing. So he caught these 300 foxes. He took torches and he turned the foxes tail to tail. So he tied their tails together, put a torch between each pair of the tails. Then he set the torches on fire. He let the foxes go and... Uh, Listen, when your tail's on fire, you're going to cover some ground. And that's the idea here. So he, he let him go, and those foxes began, three, 150 pair began to just run through. It's the time of, of the wheat harvest, we know from verse 1. So it just began to run through all of the crops and, and all of the Philistines. And it burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive groves. And so the wheat that had already been harvested and it had been, you know, the shocks of wheat, that was all burnt up. The wheat that was still in the field just ready to be harvested. The fires then spread into these other crops. The, uh, 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 the vineyards burning up the, the vines also into the olive groves. And so in an agrarian society, this was a, a, a tremendous devastation that he, he brought against uh, the Philistines here. Ba basically what it is, is it's a, an ancient form of a declaration of war. When you, came in, when you come in and you burn your enemies, uh, food supply, they recognize that to be an, an act of war against them. And that's exactly what it is that, that he did here. So this represents a, a crushing loss uh, for the Philistines. Now, don't feel too sorry for the Philistines. We're going to see how wicked they are in just a moment. Verse 6, the Philistines said, who has done this? I mean, who's behind all this destruction? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law uh, of the Timnite because he was, has taken Samson's wife and given her to the best man. And so the Philistines came up and they burned the woman uh, and her father with fire. So they just burned them alive and probably uh, blocked them into the house and set the thing uh, on fire. So it gives us kind of a little bit of a glimpse at the character of the Philistines at that time and why God uh, wanted to judge them. This really upset Samson. Uh, and so he said to them, Since, and sense is a reason word, since you would do a thing like this, as the news comes to him, burnt alive in their homes, he said, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. And so he is horrified by what they've done. He's angry 
uh, at what they've done. And so he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And then he went down and he dwelt in the cleft of the rock at Etam. And so we don't know what it, quite what it, uh, the meaning of the expression that uh, he attacked them hip and thigh. Some people think it's like a, a wrestling term or uh, a close hand-to-hand combat term. Uh, we don't know for sure, but one thing that we do know is that it, it signifies the fact that the Philistines took a terrible beating in this uh, encounter with, uh, with uh, Samson. And, and now the Philistines went up and they encamped in Judah and they deployed themselves against Lehi. Now remember the Philistines are, uh, uh, the, they have control of the children of Israel. They, uh, the children of Israel are subservient to them. So when this thing happens and they hear that, that this man is uh, one of the children of Israel that's doing it, now they want to take this out on the children of Israel uh, as a whole. And so they come and they, they lay siege to the city of Lehi. And the men of Judah came to the Philistines and said, Why have you come up against us? What's, what's going on? What's, what's your beef? And so they answered, We've come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. So we want to exact revenge on Samson for what he's done. And then look at this. 3,000 men of Judah, they're going to they're gonna go and try and arrest Samson. They don't go with 25. They take 3,000. That's the reputation that he has for strength. And they went down to the cleft of the rock at Etam, which is where he was, and they said to Samson, uh, Don't you know that the Philistines rule over us? Don't you know they could just crush us? And what is this that you have done to us by, you know, poking them in the eye with a stick here? And so why in the world are you uh, provoking our enemies who are militarily stronger than us at the moment? And Samson said to them, as they did to me, uh, so I have done to them. Interesting, the, the children of Israel are living in fear of the Philistines. They don't want a provocation. They don't want any kind of a, of a fight with, with the Philistines. And Samson possesses zero fear of the Philistines. And uh, he's commendable for that. He said, what they did to me, I did to them. They took and they burned my wife alive with her, with her dad. So I just, I just went after them and that's what came down. But they said to him, we've come down to arrest you. You and what army? Well, (laughs) we brought 3,000 that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. We've come to arrest you, to give you over to the Philistines. And Samson said to them, he doesn't want to fight with the brethren. He said, swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. And so they spoke to him saying, no, but we will tie you securely, deliver you into their hand. So they can kill you, but we will surely not kill you. And so they bound him with two new ropes, and they thought they've got him good and secure, had some Eagle Scouts there, and got the knots just right, and they brought him up from the rock. And when he came to Lehi, the Philistines, they saw one look at him all tied up with these ropes, and they got so excited they came shouting against him. I mean, just Middle, Middle East emotion and shouting. I mean, he's a dead man, really. And then the Spirit of the Lord, so the victory supernatural, came mightily upon Samson, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, weakened by fire, and his bonds, he broke loose from his hands. He just snapped the ropes, and he found, he's just looking for a weapon, any weapon around. Uh, He's got a thousand Philistine uh, men of war running at him at the moment to tear him from limb to limb. Remember, the Philistines were far advanced from the children of Israel at this time in history in that they were able to work iron. So they had iron weaponry, this kind of thing. The children of Israel did not have that kind of weaponry. So he looks around. He grabs the the nearest kind of weapon that he can uh, 
thing that he can make a weapon out of, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and he reached out his hand and he took it. Now, if he had, uh, it, something had happened, a donkey had died out there in, in that uh, wilderness area. Uh, somehow its bones probably picked by the animals and by the birds and all. And, but the jawbone of an ass, if it was an old one, it would just be brittle. It would break in his hand the first guy hit with it. Um, but because it was a, a fresh death, uh, it, it had the, the kind of resiliency to it, and he was able to use it at, at length as a weapon, and he took it in his hand and he killed a thousand men with it. But it wasn't the jawbone of the ass, it was the Holy Spirit uh, upon him. And then, Philist, and then Samson said, uh, with, a jawbone, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, speaking of the bodies that piled up uh, of the Philistines, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. He killed a thousand guys in this particular battle. So he's a pretty rough around the edges, pretty tough guy. But he's a poet, too. Got a little artistic side to him. He likes to write a poem. He likes riddles. He likes poems. And uh, so um, he, he puts this little poem together related to, to honor the event. And so it was, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and he called that place uh, Ramoth-Lehi, which, uh, which means uh, jawbone heights. And essentially he named the place uh, after that particular uh, event. So, uh, Ramoth Lehi. And then he became very thirsty. So, uh, I, I, I've never been in combat before. I've read lots of books about it, which means I know nothing except that I've read a lot of books about it. But one of the things that's very interesting when you read books about men that head uh, into combat, especially when they head into hand-to-hand -hand kind of combat. It's a very warm part of the year over there, the time of the wheat harvest and what was going on. One of the things that they speak about is the thirst. I mean, the unbelievable. You think about what happens when you watch a wrestling match. And a wrestling match is different than a wrestling match, for those of you who don't know. We're talking about real wrestling. And... Uh, but they, they wrestle there for a, whatever the period of time is, and I mean, it's just exhausting. And imagine fighting for your very life for minutes and for hours, and the thirst that builds. It's, uh, you know, I'm told it's just indescribable, and that's kind of what's happened to him. He became very thirsty, and he cried out to the Lord. And it's, uh, there's only two prayers that he offers in the entire 20 years of his ministry, and this is one of them. He cried out to the Lord, and he said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? I'm thankful for the victory uh, that you gave me, Lord, but if I don't get some water, I'm going to die and, and uh, they'll come and, and grab me. So he doesn't have an ounce of strength left. The Lord honors the prayer, and so the Lord sp uh, split the hollow place that is in Lehi, some kind of a rock uh, basin, so to speak, and uh, God uh, split that water uh, supernaturally, came up, maybe a spring there, and the Lord exposes it. He drank the water, his spirit was returned, and he revived. And you know how quick you can revive when you get some water when you need it. And therefore, he called its name En-Hakori, and again, uh, which is in Lehi to this day, En-Hakori, again named uh, after the event, it means spring of the caller. And so he named, named that particular place after the Lord's providing water for him as a result of his prayer. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Chapter 16, which is a record of Samson's downfall. He's, he's been in a 20-year downfall, but now it, he just comes to the, the end of things in, in, in this chapter. Now Samson went to Gaza, one of the five main cities of the Philistines, and he saw a harlot there, so he didn't go there looking for a harlot, but he saw it there, and there, there apparently wasn't a, a, a good-looking Philistine woman that he wasn't attracted to. So he goes there, he sees the harlot there, and he goes into her. And, and, and you, just, you just think about 
the anointing that he has, the calling of, that God has upon his life. He has the potential to be one of the greatest names in the history uh, of all of, of Israel, of all of the Old Testament. God's given, God has uh, uh, predestined him, God has anointed him, God has called him, God has given him a great ministry at a strategic time in the history of the Jews. And he goes into harlots when he goes to Gaza. I mean, this guy has no sense of proportion. He clearly does not value the things of the Lord, the blessings of the Lord, what it means to walk with God, to obey God, to serve God. These are things that mean nothing to him. When, with, with a guy like Samson, they will mean something to him. They will it by the end of the chapter. They'll mean something to him, but it'll be the hard way. And he's the kind of guy and... Trust me, there's a Samson in every one of us, male and female, because we're all descendants of Adam and Eve. We all have within us a fallen nature that would much rather say yes to our flesh than to say yes to God when we're forced to make a choice. That flesh lives inside of us. But as Pastor Ron Blanc brought out in the, last week, there's, there's a a greater power in us, the Holy Spirit, than the power of the flesh that's now come into our lives that gives us the ability and even the desire to say yes to the Spirit and to say no to the flesh. But this is what he is. He just goes along and he just takes God's calling for granted, uh, all of these things for granted. And any time the choice comes between choosing his flesh and choosing God's way, he just chooses his flesh. That's the kind, that's the kind of guy he is at the moment. So he just goes in uh, to, to, to be with, uh, with her. Uh, here's a, I mean, he, can, he can tear a lion in half with his bare hands. He can kill a, a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass. And, uh, and, and yet, he couldn't conquer his, his own uh, lust here. And uh, so, in, 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 he's looking for trouble. One of the things, big mistakes that Samson makes here is going into Gaza at all. Why does he need to go into Gaza? <laughs> is he going to the hardware store? Why is he going to Gaza? The Philistines were notorious in the ancient world for being a very, very immoral people. Why is he going into Gaza? There's no need for him to go into there. There's no need to put himself... He already knows he has a weakness with women. He knows he has a weakness for Philistine women. So why go to a place where you're going to be tempted in that way? If, if a person has a trouble with alcohol, you don't go into a bar to have a seven-up. You, you recognize in your own life that I've got to be careful in this area of my life or I'm not ever going to fulfill God's plan for my life. And you set up boundaries in your life biblically. The Bible says, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, flee youthful lusts. And that covers a lot of ground, but one of them is this kind of thing. I think about, and it's a great encouragement. Sometimes somebody can sit here and think, well, you know, I'm, I'm walking close with God and intimate with God, and that's just fabulous. And, uh, and somebody, and, and I think, well, this is, he, uh, he's got to be speaking to other people in the room and not speaking to me. Think about it in the Old Testament. If a man like Joseph, a young man, about whom nothing bad is said in the entire biblical record, found it necessary to run in order to protect God's call and purposes upon his life, then we're going to find ourselves in the same place too. And so here he is. He had no business being in, in, in Gaza. And, 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 he, and there are places that we have no business being in. The Bible says that God will never tempt us above what we're able to bear. And I'm glad for that promise. But I will tempt myself beyond what I'm able to withstand. You can tempt yourself beyond what you're able to withstand. That's what Samson does. 
He brings this sin close. He's got a long track record of not being able to stand in the face of this stuff, and yet he doesn't clean his house out. He doesn't get rid of his GPS system to take him over to Gaza. He doesn't build some accountability into his life and, and put some restrictions upon himself. And when the Gazites were told, these are all Philistines, Samson's come into Gaza, they surrounded the place. And they lay in wait, they knew where the harlot was, and they lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And, and they were quiet all night saying, and this is how they comforted themselves, in the morning when it's daylight, we're going to kill that guy. He has come right into the camp of the devil. We're going to get him here. Now, and, and so Samson, he lay low until midnight. Somehow he knows all this is going on. He rose at midnight. And he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city. And he took the two gate posts, pulled them up right up out of the ground. Bar and all, put them on his shoulders. Carried them to the top of the hill that faces Hebron. Now, the gates of a city... In, ter in terms of Gaza, Gaza was a city that was closed off with a wall, evidently. And you would set up a gate in the city as a means of controlling who would come in, who would go out. It would protect you against attack. And so when you closed the gates of the city, it was, it was your security system for a city in, those, in, in, in the ancient world. When he goes down and he pulls those gates up by their roots and walks off with them, he is basically communicating to them, you have no security against me. But again, it's, he's being stupid. Stupid. Don't say that at home, because mom will tell you not to use the S word in the house if, you're, if it's forbidden there. In, in, the, in the Bible, in the old King James, they call it brutish. But in the new King James... Some of the Proverbs are translated stupid. There is such thing as being stupid in life. And we can be stupid as a Christian. I mean, here is a guy that takes and he's visiting a harlot. I mean, he's just absolutely trashed his witness. And, and yet now he's going to go over there and he's, and he's going to do this big show of strength by pulling up the gates of the city and and uh, walking out of there. I mean, he's sending every kind of wrong signal to the Philistines about the God that he claims to serve. But he's a strong guy. And he, and he lifts them up, and he carries them to the hill, we're told, that faces Hebron. Now, we don't really know, the, the, the way that that's phrased, we don't know what the distance is. Hebron's 37 miles away from Gaza. So he might have picked those things up and carried them. I don't like to carry heavy bags of groceries from the garage into the house. I'm just kidding. Please know that I'm just kidding. But to carry that for 37 miles, he might have done that. Or it might have been he carried it some particular distance to a hill that then faced Hebron. But either way, a supernatural demonstration of the Holy Spirit in his life. He is so wasting God's anointing in his life. He is just using this, he is using God's anointing and God's power like a silly child, how he's, he's using it. And, and it's going to catch, uh, catch up with him. And afterwards it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. It is the first and the only time we're told the whole account concerning Samson that he uh, fell in love. This is the, he falls in love with her, and uh, she is probably a Philistine. She has a Semitic name, which means devotee, and so she may have been a, a temple prostitute. And so here we read for the first time, Samson, Samson falls in love with this woman. So apparently he wanted to marry the other gal, but he wasn't in love with her. He wanted to marry her for other reasons. And so uh, he, he, uh, he, he, he spots her, falls in, in, in love with, with her, and pretty soon he's going to lose everything as a result of this particular relationship. You leave a door open to the devil, like Samson 
leaves open to the Philistines and to Delilah. And I'll guarantee you that the devil will be very happy to bring a Delilah into your life or bring a Samson into your life. These two, because he did not slam doors he should have slammed in his life a long time ago, this whole event was just waiting to happen in his life. It was just a matter of who the devil was going to pick out to bring him down. Do you realize that the devil is the God of this world, is the God of this age? He has unbelievable people resources to come against God's call in your life and in my life. He can bring men into your life that are absolute knockouts, whatever the word is for that, whatever women use for men like this. And you can look and say, wow, I mean, how could a guy like that be attracted to me? The devil sent him. If he's not born again and walking with God. Guy looks and says, Wow, is this pretty young thing looking at me and all it's so attractive to me and all how could she what does she see? You're looking in the mirror, I'm like, is this gonna start lifting weights and the whole thing and everything? The devil sent her. He has unbelievable resources to send people to into our lives to get us to take the hook and then to destroy God's call upon our lives. I, I am... Uh, no Christian should ever missionary date. Should never do it. The Bible says we're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And how many times it happens where here is a gal and a guy, a Christian gal, and, and starts to spend time with this non-Christian guy or vice versa. No, I'm just going to be a witness to him, and I'm just going to do this and, and the whole thing and, and all. And what, what happens so often is what happens to Samson here is pretty soon they fall in love. Or at least she falls in love with him. And then now things get very, very sticky. Don't date non-Christians. Don't date who you cannot marry. Be more protective of God's call on your life for yourself. And do what's right related to the other person. So best not to do it. He's, he's blowing through all kinds of stop signs here in, in all of this. So he falls in love with this woman by the name of Delilah. And the Philistines, of course, want to exploit the relationship the same way the devil does in, in our lives. So the lords of the Philistines, they came to her and they said to her, entice him and find out where his great strength lies. You know what that tells us? He didn't look like the Incredible Hulk. We think, he's, we think he looks like some kind of an action figure, you know. He can hardly move, you know, because... Somebody scratch my back, please, somebody. I can't, I can't get my arms up. We always think of Samson as this gigantic guy. If he looked like that, they would have said, Listen, Delilah, we don't need to find out what the source of his strength is. We know what it is. Look at those muscles. He's probably a pretty fit guy, probably a pretty good-looking guy, probably built a little bit bigger than average. But they looked at him and said, I don't care how fit that guy is, there's something more than his muscles that allows him to take out a thousand of our best in one battle. Or to lift up the gates of our city and carry it 37 miles away. So they, they recognize there's something that doesn't meet the eye about him in terms of the source of his strength. And, and we need to know what that is in order to defeat him. And so find out where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him. And now they're not interested in killing him. They hate him so much, now they want to torture him. We want to catch him alive, and we want 
to bind him, to afflict him. And every one of us, probably the five different lords of the five main cities of the Philistines, will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. They offer her an immense wealth, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to do this. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies. And then here's, here's the line that ought to get you. And with what you may be bound to afflict you. If you ever hear that on a date or wherever, something's wrong. People don't talk like that to care about you. So she comes and, I mean, this is as, this is as um, kind of cool or... <laughs> oh, by the way, Samson, I, apparently as, as Delilah uh, can be. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings, not yet dry, he's going to deceive her, then I'll become weak like every other man. So the lords of the Philistines, they brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not yet dried. She bound him with them. Now there were lying in wait in the room, staying with her, hidden away in the room, uh, these uh, Philistine men. And she said to Samson, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, as a, as a signal for the Philistines that are in the room to be ready in, in case this really does work, but he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire, and so the secret of his strength was not uh, known. So this, uh, the first attempt that she makes now to discover the source of, of his, uh, his strength. So um, the uh, uh, unsuccessful. And then Delilah, attempt number two, said to Samson, Look, you've mocked me, and you told me lies. I mean, this is, this is chutzpah, to play the victim on something like that. Now, please tell me what you may be bound with. And so he said to her, If they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And therefore Delilah took new ropes, bound him with them, and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but remaining in secret. But he broke them off his arms like thread. And then the third attempt, Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me, and you, I can't get the truth out of you. You've told me lies. I mean, how can we build a relationship on lies? <laughs> Tell me what you may be bound with. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head, my hair, into the web of the loom, he's, he is wearing down. He's getting closer to the source of his strength. And so she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom and then said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and he pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. And so unsuccessful a third uh, time. You look at Samson here and in just a casual reading of it, you look at him and you say, How... How can he be so foolish? He's, being an, he's just being a fool in this situation. I'll tell you, sin can make a fool out of us. You think about how many times somebody looks back on a situation after the thing ends in disaster, and this is going to end in disaster, and they beat themselves up over the same question. How could I miss all those signs? How could I not see this coming? How could I have been such a fool? And the, and the reason is, is that sin can make a fool of us. I really love the old saying, and I mention it 
very often in this vein, and that is that the ruthlessness of sin requires ruthlessness with sin. Sin is dangerous in our lives. Delilah is dangerous in our lives. We, when we recognize sin in our lives, we need to recognize it and then repent of it. And Samson thinks he's in control of the whole situation. I mean, I know I, I've been like this for 20 years and it hasn't caught up with me yet. And yet each step of the way, he is weakening in the face of the temptation. And now he's talking about his hair. And that's why James warns us that sin leads to death. First spiritual death, and then it leads to a physical death. And the Bible also warns, it's one of my favorite phrases about sin, it warns us against the deceitfulness of sin. And the word deceitful means it lies. Sin lies. You can never get the truth from sin. And you know what the biggest lie is, the greatest lie that sin will tell us? You're different. You can control this. Sure, other people fall when they dabble in this kind of thing and they end up as a casualty. But they're not as strong as you are. They're not as smart as you are. They're not as anointed as you are. And the whole time, as James said, that sin is setting that person up for their destruction. Sin lies, the deceitfulness of sin, and he buys the lie all the way through. Now in verse 15, here is the final attempt, attempt number four, which is ultimately successful. And then she said to him, how can you say, I love you? So it's the all I love you card. How, how, can, how can I take seriously when you say I love you and every time I try to tie you up to hurt you, it's a lie. You know what that does to me? might not have been just like that, but it's equally ridiculous. You say, I love you when your heart is not with me. You've mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. And it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. She turned into a nagging machine, just wore him out. Now, one of the interesting things about this, I'm not saying that all women are nags. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying she was. Now, I'm being dead serious about that. I do, I, I do, I, I do believe, I do believe I'm buying time at the moment. No, but my point is, I mean, it's tremendous diversity in the human condition. But there are this kind of, of, of people on this. The interesting thing about Samson is, is that, I mean, again, he could stand up to an army of Philistines, could stand up to a roaring lion attacking him, and, I mean, nothing moved him at all. But the two times that, that there was success against him, it was a woman just nagging and vexing him to death, just pestering him, and, and it just wore him down. Again, the danger of keeping sin close to us wears us down. We just think, no, I'm strong enough, I'm strong enough. We are not strong enough to keep it close. And so she vexed him to death. He wanted to die under the weight of it, and so he told her all that was in his heart. And he said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And if I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. I think it's important for us to realize, in fact, I know it is, 
that his hair was not the source of his strength. Every mention of Samson's physical exploits, every supernatural expression of his strength in the entire account is ascribed to the Holy Spirit coming upon his life. The importance of the hair being uncut was that it was one of the signs of the vows that he had made to God, to be, his life to be consecrated to God for God's purposes. He himself, when he stated to, to Delilah that a haircut would break the vow and it would render him powerless, um, he, uh, he stated it because physical strength was the gift that he had from God as a result of his consecration to the Lord. It wasn't his hair. It was the final thing that, that he was at least faithful to. He'd, he had touched dead bodies. He had uh, partaken of the fruit of the vine. He'd broken every aspect of the Nazarite vow um, uh, up to this point, except for this, this final issue of, of his hair being cut. And uh, now he's going to break that final thing and in a final way essentially declare, I, I don't care about my consecration to God. And now he's going to have serious consequences uh, related to it. As we see down in, in verse 20 in just a moment, the loss of, of his strength is absolutely attributed to the Holy Spirit lifting off of him and not the loss uh, of his hair. And the Holy Spirit lifts off of him because you can only grieve the Holy Spirit so long before ultimately you quench him and he is forced to pull back and then let us uh, get our medicine and hopefully repent and turn back to him, which Samson is going to do. And so when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she knew immediately this is the truth. She knew men. And she sent and she called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all in his heart. And so the lord of the Philistines came up to her, and they brought the money in their hands. She wanted money in advance. And then she lulled him to sleep on her knees. That's what sin does. I love you. Oh, I care about you. We've got such a wonderful relationship. No one will ever know. And he, she called for a man uh, and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. So apparently he's asleep on his, uh, her lap, and uh, she doesn't want to disturb him, so calls a barber in to cut, cut his hair. And then she began to torment him. That's what sin does once it's got us. Once there's the huge fall, then it just turns. And, and it, it pretended to be our friend for so long, and the first chance it gets to show its true colors against us, it does it. And she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And so he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. He thinks he's just going to jump up and God's strength and God's anointing and all these things that were associated with God's call upon his life that he was completely ignoring for a life of sin, that it was just that anointing was just always going to be there to play games with. And one day it was gone. I'll tell you, it happens all the time. I love this passage. One of the reasons that I love this passage for my own life and God's calling upon my life. You know, I, I like to learn everything I can from things that people do that are successful, but I like to try and learn from other people's mistakes here. And I know from this passage that if I begin to take for granted any kind of grace that God is showing me in my service to Him, that ultimately... One day I will wake up and he will have lifted any kind of favor that is on my life off of me. And, and that whole thing, he did not know that the Lord had departed from him, is very sobering, but it's a needed sobering for us in our service to the Lord to protect God's call upon our lives. You see it all the time. 
in, our, in, our, in people's service to the Lord where one day the whole thing just, it just crashes and burns and then as the details begin to come out about the private life that they had had for so many months and sometimes for so many years and what was the lie that sin tells us in that situation? Here's the lie. God can't be so concerned about your willful disobedience to Him. After all, He keeps anointing you. He keeps using you. And so Samson thinks that God must be okay with his sin, that God is winking at his sin because God keeps strengthening him, not realizing that the day will come that one day he'll stand up and that won't be there anymore. Sometimes God will strengthen us even when we're in, and anoint us even when we are in living a life of secret sin against him for the sake of the people sometimes that are being ministered to. Sometimes he will do it for a period of time and I have no doubt as it relates to Samson in the hopes that Samson would one day repent or at least to give him the opportunity to repent. And, and so God's patience, God's continued anointing should never be misunderstood as the fact that God is co-signing or he's okay with any secret sin in our lives as, as Christians. And so that's... That's the wrong assumption that, that he makes here, and it's a very, very common uh, uh, rationale. And so Samson discovers in, in verse 20 that he is completely powerless apart from God. And we need to know that all the days of our Christian lives and ministries but it's always sad when someone begins to think they are powerless, or they're powerful on their own strength and their own doing. They think it's something about them and they don't realize that it is all God in our lives. And that wake-up call is, is a wake-up call I, I never want to, by the grace of God, ever experience. And so, very sad, verse 20. The Philistines took him. The first thing they did is they... They dug his eyes right out of his head. They brought him down to Gaza. Number two, they bound him with bronze fetters. And number three, he became a grinder in the prison. So you have the classic three-point sermon on sin in that verse from the life of Samson. Sin blinds, it binds, and it grinds. Only preaches in English, but you can't do much better than that. The first thing that sin does is it blinds us to its danger. Are you blinded to the danger of sin in your life tonight, the privacy of your own heart? It will never stop with just blinding us to its danger. Then it binds us. It begins to take us captive. And then ultimately we are grinding like Samson was grinding wheat in Gaza for the Philistine population. He's lowered to the level of an animal. And that's what sin does ultimately. It takes us into bondage and then it reduces us to an animal life like existence. And that's what it did in Samson. That's what it does in every human life. And there's no exception. That's always the course that sin takes. Now, one of the reasons they, they probably made him a grinder in the prison was because of the fact that uh, that was women's work, so it was a way to humiliate him. However, and there's grace in this story, we know there has to be because Samson ends up in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. And the grace is found in the fact that God is a God of second chances. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been, uh, 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 had been shaven. So his hair begins to regrow and one of the things that I think that his hair regrowing was a picture of something spiritual that was happening in his life. One of the things uh, about a boring, tedious job like Samson uh, had now, he's just grinding wheat, he's blind, and it's just this mindless, 
passing of day after day in this kind of way, whenever you've got that kind of a tedious existence, it gives you a lot of time to think. And trust me, the last thing that Samson wanted was a lot of time to think about his life. But thankfully, God introduces himself into that thinking. Can you imagine being him, run through those hills like a deer able to carry the strength, the freedom, all the things. Now he's bound and he's blind and he's doing this tedious, mindless kind of a job. Now his mind must have just gone back over his life. I mean, the regret. I mean, you can probably, you just taste it. How could I have done that? How could I have wasted my life? God gave me so much. How could I have been so stupid to do all of these things and I've just misspent and wasted everything? If only I could have another chance, but there's no chance for me, you know. And I'm convinced that he longed for the Lord to give him one more chance to fulfill God's call upon his life, which was to deliver the children of Israel from the Philistines bondage of the Philistines. And the reason that I think that's so is because ultimately when the opportunity presents itself to him to bring judgment on the Philistines, he knew exactly what he wanted to do. He had worked this whole thing out between him and God and said, God, just give me any way you want to, one more chance to bring judgment on the Philistines. I think that his subsequent actions can leave no doubt concerning Samson that he genuinely repented of his sin. And so the regrowing of his hair, only a physical picture of what was happening spiritually in his relationship with the Lord. We can't change our past. None of us can change our past. But we can give him the rest of our lives, whatever condition we're in, for God to use for his purposes. So God gives him a second chance. Verse 23, The lords of the Philistines gathered together to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon their God, and to rejoice, this big party. And they said, our God has delivered into our hands Samson, our enemy. They're ascribing it to, uh, to Dagon, who delivered Samson into their hands. The Lord did. Dagon had nothing to do with it. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has delivered into our hands our enemy, the destroyer of our land, the one who has multiplied our dead. And so it happened when their hearts were merry. They'd been drinking in this festival and party. They said, Call for Samson that he may perform for us. You know, bring the hulking, blind, chained mess out of the dungeon and bring him up here and let's watch him stumble over things as, as a part of our amusement. And so they called for Samson from the prison and he performed for them. And then they stationed him between the pillars that supported the whole building. And Samson said to the lad who led him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars which support the temple so that I can lean on them. Doubtless in the course of his journeys to Gaza over the years, he had taken note of the construction of that particular temple. Philistine construction was uniform. They built these things all the same way, these, these columns that, in the center of the room that supported uh, most of the weight. And so he says to the guy that's leading him around like some kind of an animal, just let me feel the pillars that support the temple so I can lean on them. And innocently he's taken over there. Now the temple was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, about 3,000 men and women on the roof watching while Samson performed. That's a lot of people that are going to be killed in this. And uh, this would be a, a tremendous blow to the, the leadership and, and, and the wickedness of, of the Philistine uh, people. And then Samson called to the Lord only the second prayer of Samson in 20 years. It's recorded that he lifted up to God. And this is a different kind of prayer. He's not saying, give me water, I'm going to die. What kind of a, you know, none of that stuff. He said, oh Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray. Just this once, O oh God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines from my two eyes. And so he asks, basically he's just saying to God, God, I have frittered away your anointing. 
your power, your call upon my life for 20 years. And now I know what it is not to feel those things that I took for granted every single day for all of my life, not just the 20 years that I was to be the judge of Israel. And now that it's all gone, God, now for the first time I truly appreciate what it was to feel those things. Would you just let me feel that one more time? I think we can all understand his heart on that. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars which supported the temple. He braced himself against them, one on his right and the other on his left. And then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all of his might. The temple fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. And so the dead that he killed at his death were more than he had killed in his life. And then his brothers and all his father's household came down, took him, brought him up, buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of his father Manoah. He had judged Israel 20 years. Before we partake of communion, two themes to consider tonight in light of communion from the life of Samson. One of them negative, one of them positive if you excuse the terminology on it. One of the things that Samson teaches us, I think, and I mean it's the lesson of what not to do and what not to be. You think about his life, raised by godly parents, raised with a godly heritage, predestined by God, foreordained by God, anointed by God, gifted by God, God called by God. He had everything that he could possibly be given for him to be successful. And yet he wasted all of it on carrying around the gates of the city and lighting foxes on, uh, on tails on fires and riddles and killing 30 men to get their clothes and all this just dumb, dumb stuff. To me, the one thing, if you want to, there's a lot you can learn about him, but the one thing you reduce to, I think, on a negative, the thing that was the ultimate cause of his fall was an absolute lack of sobriety about serving God and walking with God and obeying God's call upon his life. This was a strategic time in the history of the children of Israel and he never took it seriously. Life was a big game to him. And we can look at him and say, Samson, what a pathetic person and what a sorry excuse of what this and the whole thing and all. But his life asks us the question, what am I doing with God's calling on my life? His gifting, my godly heritage, his purposes for my life. And it's just as easy, maybe not to fritter it away with, with Philistine women and all of these kind of childish things that he did, but are these things that God has entrusted to us in the mix and in the middle of God's work in the world today? And so there's lessons for us here. The importance of being serious about God in this world. Being serious about the call of God and serving God in this world really, really serious about it, lest we waste our whole life. The positive, the upside kind of lesson from Samson is that Samson reveals to us here that the God that he served and the God that we serve is a God of second chances. And you may sit here tonight. I don't know everybody's story in this room. I don't know a tenth of the stories in this room. But someone can sit here tonight and God has brought you into this place this evening and you have thrown everything away. You have lost your marriage. You have lost your children. You have lost your job. You have lost your prestige. You have lost your ministry. You have thrown it all away as surely as Samson did. 
And the great lesson that God wants to bring out of Samson's life to any of us in that kind of a place is that he is a God of second chances. God, if he is given the opportunity, if I will confess my sin to him, ask for his forgiveness, and have a reference point tonight to begin to walk with him and to live for him, God will never allow our failure to have the final say in any of our lives. Isn't it amazing? You look at this, it is four chapters plus of just failure after failure after failure related to Samson. And what's the final word about him in the Bible? God includes him in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 in the New Testament. That's the greatness of the blood of Jesus Christ and the greatness of the new covenant that we're a part of. God wants in our lives, whatever we've thrown away, whatever we've destroyed, He wants to give us a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. I wish I never made a mistake. I wish I never did anything wrong. I wish I never sinned. I wish I never said anything wrong. But I do. And, we, and you do too. And it may not be as glaring as Samson or it may be every bit as glaring as Samson. And God wants us to know that because of the blood of Jesus Christ, with our confession of sin and repentance, that He is a God of second chances. And He wants that, that to be the testimony of our lives if we will but give Him the chance. And so tonight as we partake of communion this evening let's get right with God wherever we need to get right with him this evening and then let's just celebrate our second chances God this evening in communion and Jesus remembering him the one who's made it possible if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward we will serve communion